Thanks, Alan. Well, if you've got your Bibles, grab them. First uh, Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, one of the things that I have uh, been thankful for over the last several months as we've not been together on Sunday mornings is that we had decided, um, and I believe the Lord led us to this at the beginning of the year, to all be uh, reading through the New Testament together, one chapter a day, five days a week. Um, I've been encouraged by that, knowing that even though we're not together, that the Spirit of God lives in each one of us, uh, that know Him as Savior, but also that we're all in the same passage of Scripture and have the same truth, uh, hopefully getting into our hearts and our minds day by day, and that we're praying for each other. Um, uh, and I've also been amazed and encouraged by God's provision in that Bible reading plan, as simple as it may sound, just that, uh, just what we've been reading and the truth that's been in, in there, I think it's just been timely uh, every week. I know it's been, it's been speaking to me, and I know I've received text messages from many of you of how God has uh, been speaking to you through the Word um, as well. I want us uh, to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be looking at the first 14 verses. You can just stay there. That's where I'm going to land. But I also am going to read some other passages here very quickly um, in John chapter 4 and then also in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that we would have read two weeks ago. So let me just begin to read this as we get going here this morning. But first in John chapter 4, this is Jesus to the woman at the well. She said to him, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, the true worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And then chapter 10, where I asked you to turn, starting in verse 1. Paul says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. 
Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you might be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Pray with me one more time. Father, thank you for your word this morning. God, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you hear our prayers. We thank you for the shed blood of Christ. Please open the eyes of our heart now that we could see wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, how many have been confused over the last couple months? Anybody? A little disoriented? I mean, we know what's going on, but we don't really know what's going on, right? Um, and so I think uh, being disoriented or being a little bit confused is, is quite normal, and it's something that we can all identify with um, over the last couple months as literally, you know, the news and the information has seemed to change uh, on a daily and sometimes almost an hourly basis, it seems. Um, I kind of feel the same way, like I felt over the last couple of months, as I feel sometimes when I, when I sit down to watch a movie. I, uh, and again, I, people who teach homiletics or preaching say you should never use sports analogies or movie analogies, but it's all I ever have, so I go with what I got. But I, I sat down the other night to watch a movie with the boys, one of these Avenger movies, it's like a you know, superhero type of deal. And I was asking Nate this morning, because I know Nate's into this stuff, but like, I guess there's like 20-some movies in this, in this series. And I watched the one I watched the other night, and I watched one other one. So, you know, easy to say that what I'm saying is I, I didn't know what was going on half the time, you know. I didn't know what was, what was happening. I wasn't, I wasn't aware of the storyline. And so, you know, I wanted to go back and try to, you know, figure out, you know, what was happening, figuring out what the storyline is. Because if you're disoriented, if you're confused, if you don't know what's going on, you have to get caught up into the bigger story of what's been happening. And also, if you know the end, and, and for us as Christians, it's even a little bit different than just finding out what's been happening. But we know where it's, what's going to happen as well, right? We know where this is going. And so I say that because in this passage here this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but I want to show you briefly, you know, also throughout all of the scriptures, is that guys, we are part of a story. We are part of a story. And I, I just can't say that enough. We're part of a story. And it's not our story. We're not the star, we're not the central figure. God is. And he's been working this thing from the beginning of time, even before the beginning of time when, when he existed. And we have the unbelievable privilege of being a part of this story. But if we're going to kind of get our bearings and get our feet underneath us, and um, if we're not going to be confused or, you know, um, or uh, disoriented, 
then we've got we've to figure out where we're at in the story. And here's the big idea of what the story has always been about, of what I believe Paul uh, pulls the Corinthian church into here and reminds them of in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But it's throughout the Bible, and simply this, is that throughout all of human history, God has desired for himself a people that will worship him by being satisfied in him and by obeying him for his honor and for his glory. That is what each and every single one of us, not just here this morning, but throughout all the world and throughout all of time, that is what you have been created to do. You were made to worship Jesus. And because of our sin, because we're made to be worshipers, again, not just to worship, but as we read back in John chapter four, as Jesus said, that you know, the Father desires not just worship, but worshipers. That we were made to worship, but each one of us has worshiped other things, and that is at the heart of sin. And so in everything that God is doing, I believe whether it's you know, a, a crazy virus that you know, kind of you know, draws the whole world to a halt, um, or whether it's just the things that we go on, in, go on in our daily lives, we have to know that part of God's ultimate purpose of what he's wanting to do is to create for himself a people that will worship him. And by worship, I don't just mean singing. That's part of it. We get to sing. We get to worship in that way. We get to express our love for him through song. The largest book in the Bible is the book of Psalms. It's songs and poetry that's put to music so that we could be able to worship him because we're made to do that, but not just through singing, but through obedience, through following him. That is what he has always wanted. And I'll be honest with you, over the last you know, couple months, as we've been off, I, I think hopefully all of us have been doing this, is that you've just been kind of reevaluating what's important, what's true, what's not. Um, what do you really need to focus on? What do you need to prioritize? What have you been prioritizing that you, don't, you shouldn't be prioritizing? Because it's not of ultimate importance. It's not going to matter. It's not going to matter for eternity. And one of the things that... Um, I've been thinking about, obviously, I'm, you know, a pastor here, and so, you know, what we do here on Sunday mornings, we do throughout the week, like, I'm, it's my life, you know, it's what, it's what I do. And I've just been thinking a lot about what we do when we come in here on Sunday mornings. Because what we're to do when we come in here on Sunday mornings is to turn our hearts upwards towards heaven. That we are here not just to receive teaching, although that's part of it. And my mission every time I get up here and I proclaim to you God's word is to help you to worship. I want your heart to be turned upward. I want us when we sing to help turn your heart upward with your mind, with your will, with your emotions. But when we come in here, it's not just to receive information. And yes, we, can, we want to fellowship and we want to hug, although you know, we're not sure what to do with that right now. And you know, it's awkward and whatever. And that's all good and that's fine, but the primary thing that God has created us to do is so when we come together as one people, with one voice, with one heart, is to worship him. That we are not individually the bride of Christ, but we are corporately the bride of Christ. And when we gather, we gather to worship him. It's what we were made to do. But many times um, we are uh, we're disoriented. Um, and we're a little bit confused because 
we've all been worshiping other things, myself included. And I think that whenever God does something on a really big scale, like obviously the coronavirus is, and hear me, I, I don't presume to know all that God is accomplishing in and through this whole thing at all. But I think one of the general things you could deduce from the scriptures is that whenever something like this or, or something on a massive scale happens, the primary thing that he's doing is he's always starting with his church. And it's a call to his people to turn to him and to seek their hearts and to turn from anything else that might be an idol in their lives. And that's exactly what Paul reminds the church uh, in Corinth about here in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 10 is he reminds them that they are a part of a much, much, much bigger story. And while, you know, and again, for all of us in our lifetime, obviously what we've been experiencing over the last couple months is something that's unprecedented for us, but it's not unprecedented in the history of the world. It's not. And throughout history, other generations have gone through things like this, things that are even much worse, and I'm not making light of anything that's going on um, in our day and age, uh, but stuff like this has always happened, and it's always been an opportunity for God's people to come back to him and to remember what's truly important, uh, which is primarily our worship, our worship of him. I want you just to look at the text again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 quickly, and I want to just point out um, kind of the way that Paul lays this out here. He, there's, there's a couple things that just have never changed. They God's been doing it the same throughout history, and we're part of really the same story that Paul um, lays out here, and that is that God's power, God's power has never changed, God's people have not changed, and God's purpose has not changed. His power, his people, and his purposes, they have, they have not changed. First of all, in the first couple of verses here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now what he's gonna do here is um, Paul can rattle off a whole bunch of theological truth in a very short amount of time. And in the first couple verses, what he's gonna do is kind of give a sweeping history, a sweeping narrative of the children of Israel as God brought them out of Egypt. And I want you, want you just to see this detail here in verse one that I just read. He said, he's writing to the Corinthian church. They are not Jewish for the most part. There might be a few that are Jewish, but for the most part, they are Gentiles. But he says to them, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, our fathers. Now, the reason that's important is because what he's doing there is he's relaying to the Corinthian church that even though they're not Jewish, he's saying that they are still um, part of this bigger family of God through faith, through belief in Jesus Christ. And so he's, what he's doing is he's, he's tying in here what I've been talking about, that the Corinthian story is the same story that God was accomplishing way back then through the Israelites, through his people. And it's the same story that he's accomplishing in our lives today. And he says here that they were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. So if you remember the story of the Exodus, um, you know, from Sunday school, or, you know, we, we preached through the book of Exodus, you know, a couple years ago, that God delivered his people. They were in bondage for 400 years in Egypt, and God, with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, he came down and he delivered them from the bondage of the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. And one of the first things that he did when he brought them out, the way that he led them, the way that he guided them, was with a cloud. Something that's usually in the heavens comes down, and a pillar of cloud came before them to lead them and to guide them so that they didn't have to guess where to go. 
But there was now something that's usually up in the heavens came down before them and led them and guided them. And in the same way, the Corinthian church, along with us, we have received something from the heavens. We have received the presence of the Holy Spirit into our lives to come down and to lead us into God. It's not just to be out in front of us, but to be in us. That God could not be any closer than what he is. That if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that he, wants, that he comes and he dwells inside of you. He could not be closer than what he is. And he says here, Paul relays, relays this to baptism. Then, of course, he says they passed through the sea. This is the, you know, the story of the Red Sea, how God displayed his power and led them through the Red Sea. Verse 2, look at this. He says, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And Paul just says this stuff real quick, but it's really cool, the imagery that's here. As he says they were baptized into Moses, but also into the cloud and into the sea. This baptism that happens, that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that one of the things that happens is that the Holy Spirit comes and he lives inside of you. And where you were once dead, you are now made alive in your spirit. I'm going to throw a bunch of stuff at you here, but just hang with me, okay? Is that each one of us, as we are created, uh, we are tripartite beings, that we are body, we are soul, and we are spirit. Before, Ephesians chapter 2 says that before we are born again, we are spiritually dead, Sin is death. It is death living in us. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit now comes and, and makes our spirit alive in him. And so this baptism here that he speaks of, is that this, it's like this for us, the spirit coming, but also through the sea. They pass through the sea. You guys know that when somebody gets born again, when somebody gets saved here, we dunk them in the tank. Why? Because we're commanded to do that. Because it's an outward picture of the reality that's happened in our hearts. But the same thing that God did back then thousands of years ago with the Israelites is the same thing that the Corinthian church had experienced and it's the same thing that we've experienced if we believed in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the story has not changed. God has brought us out so that we could worship him. This was always his intent with the nation of Israel. As you read the book of Exodus, it's a little detail, but it's important. Whenever Moses goes in and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go, it's almost always followed with this little phrase, let my people go that they may come out and worship me. Or that they may come out and hold a festival, a feast to me, which was an act of worship to God. That the story is the same, is that God wants for himself a people that are fully his. His power has not changed. They were all baptized into Moses in the sea and in the cloud. And then he says, and all ate the same spiritual food. He's speaking here of manna. That every morning, all they had to do was walk outside their tent. And the Bible says, I don't fully know what this is. I don't, I've never eaten coriander seed to my knowledge. I don't think, Hannah, you've never put coriander seed in anything, have you? Okay, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it's, it tastes like coriander seed and honey. It's like heavenly frosted flakes laying on the ground every morning. Didn't have to work for it. Didn't have to just step out, just step outside and boom, the provision of the Lord. Every single day, real food, supernatural food from heaven. Jesus Christ, the true bread from heaven, he said in the Gospel of John, comes down, gives his life for us that we could have real spiritual life, that we, could, we have the privilege of opening up this book every single morning, coming out and re eating real spiritual food that will sustain our souls because we're not just body and soul. We're body, soul, and spirit. 
And man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And all they had to do was go out and to pick it up. Frosted flakes. It tastes good, and it's good for you too. Can't beat that. Same spiritual food, verse 4. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. You guys know the story that there's the, there was this rock. They were out in the desert. Where were they going to get water? million people out in the desert. How are they going to survive? The rock is struck. That rock is Christ, he says. And just like a literal stream of living water flowed from this physical rock thousands of years ago for the nation of Israel, and a million people were able to drink from it, in the same way the body of Christ was struck for our sin. And it is there at the cross of Christ where he bled and where he died, that we too can drink and have real spiritual life. And let me just stop and just say again, guys, God's power has not changed. We're all part of the same story. But my, my contention is, is that one of the things that God wants us to search, and again, maybe this is just for me, but over the last several weeks as we've not been meeting, is like, guys, when, when we come together here on Sunday mornings, are we coming to drink from Christ? Are we coming to eat of Christ? Are we coming to experience His presence that we hunger and thirst for Him, not just for what He can give, This salvation is great, and it is amazing, and it is all 100% totally of grace. It's of grace. There is nothing that the Israelites did to deserve this or to merit this. It is 100% totally, fully of grace. God's power has not changed, and it is available to each and every single one of us. But here's the deal. It's just though, even like God's power has not changed, his people have really not changed all that much as well either. Continue to look with me here in this passage. Verse 5, Paul interjects some brief commentary and exhortation. He says, Nevertheless, with most of them, that nation that God brought out, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So you guys know that God brought them out to take them into. He brought them out of Egypt to take them into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I don't know what that means, but it sounds good. A land flowing with milk and honey. That's what God intended for them. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And so Paul puts forward in the first couple of verses these, kind of, um, these four ways in which God's power was on display for salvation. But now, uh, uh, over and against God's power, he's going to now look at man's rebellion. But again, God's power has not changed, but God's people have not changed either. Back in Israel, in the Corinthian church, and also, I fear, in our day as well. Verse 7. These are all little snippets from the stories of the Exodus and in the book of Numbers of how God's people rebelled against him. Verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Let me point out that the heart of all that he's going to say here is about idolatry. Verse 7, you'll see the word idolatry, and he's going to end. He's going to make his final point here in verse 14, where I ended reading, therefore, my brothers, he says, flee from idolatry. 
that idolatry is at the heart of sin, that God brings them out, he's feeding them, he's, he's feeding them with, with, with manna, he's, they're drinking from the rock, they come out to Mount Sinai, they're standing there before him, Moses goes up on the mountain before him, and Moses is up there getting the Ten Commandments that they might know now how to live. It wasn't a burden, it was good. Don't kill, don't steal, don't covet. Those are all good things, they're good commands for people that have lived 400 years in slavery. God has good things intended for us in his law, but before the ink is even dry on the paper or on the stone, you might say, as they were written on there with the finger of God, Moses comes back down the mountain and the people have made a golden calf. They have made God in another image. Verse seven, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, and this is from Exodus 32. It says, the people sat down to eat and drink, and I, and I love how relevant the word of God is. Don't miss this, because why is this little phrase in here? The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They see this great salvation. They see the Red Sea parted. They see the cloud before them. They see the, the, the pillar of fire at night. It's the presence of God leading and guiding them in the wilderness. They eat the manna. They drink from the rock. They see God's provision. They see all this. And what is the first thing they do? They go back and they make an idol. And again, it says here, they rose to drink and, to, and rose up to, to play, to play, to play. If I had to name one of the biggest idols in our culture, I would say it is this, entertainment. That we want to literally, and we literally are entertaining ourselves to death. Now hear me, I just mentioned earlier, like I watched a movie. I'm not getting legalistic, I'm not saying all movies are wrong. Here's the point though, is that even though they had experienced this great salvation, they're now out of Egypt. They, they, they can't handle the reality of this relationship with this almighty, holy God that they're called to serve. And so what do they do? They entertain themselves so that they don't have to fully look at it, so that they don't have to look at the glory that's there on the mountain in the cloud that Moses went up to, but that they said, Moses, you, you, you go talk to him. You go talk to him. We don't want to have to deal with him. They entertain themselves right out of his presence. Verse 8, he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Uh, you guys know a couple months ago we had a um, conference with Julie Slattery and Jonathan Doggerty um, from Authentic Intimacy Ministries. Jonathan is from uh, Texas, uh, Be Broken Ministries, helping people get out of the bonds of sexual addiction. I, they were both on a podcast together the other day that I was listening to um, recently, and I guess, I don't know what the exact statistics are, but during the uh, coronavirus pandemic, that online pornography use has just, whoosh, just went through the roof. Because we, we don't know what to do. And so we run back to our idols. Entertain us and soothe us. We're trying. This is the heart of mankind, from the Israelites to the Corinthians to our day today. Is we are looking for satisfaction, but we are looking in all of the wrong places. You were made to be satisfied. You were made to make much of something. 
but it wasn't anybody in Hollywood, it wasn't anybody in the NBA or in the NFL or in Major League Baseball. It wasn't, you weren't made to make much of an image on a screen. You were made to make much of Jesus. You, you, you were made to every day wake up and feed your soul on the supernatural life that he offers to you. You were made every day to drink deeply of the reality of his Holy Spirit that he died to purchase for you. Verse 9 says, we must not put Christ to the test. Now again, it's not speaking to the Israelites here. It's a New Testament church. Same dispensation, same area, epoch in which we live. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. You got God's salvation, man's rebellion, and then you've also got God's correction. And when God comes to correct you, he'll correct you. He knows how to get his point across. And some were destroyed by serpents. And the testing here, this is, this is incredible. Verse 9, this is taken from Numbers chapter 21. Here's the thing specifically that they were testing him on, and then they were destroyed by serpents. Numbers 21, 6. You know this manna that he'd been providing every day? Just been laying on the ground, come out and feed their souls. Um, you know what they were grumbling about? The manna. Again, it's not like it tasted like broccoli or, or, or peas. I mean, I understand some, you know, grumbling about that. Well, not really, but you know, it tasted like honey. Frosted Flakes, and here's what they say in Numbers 21, 6. We loathe this worthless food. Oh, so, 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 so tired of it. Oh, you mean I got to get up and read my Bible again? Oh. You mean I got to do devotions again? You mean we got to go to prayer again? And our hearts are bent towards evil. Even though God has been nothing but gracious to us. Verse 10, nor grumble. I like this one. This is actually one of the biggest ones that kept them out of the promised land. They grumbled. They murmured over and over and over again. And in the end, they were destroyed and they could not go up into the promised land. Grumbling, murmuring. It's the opposite of thankfulness. That they were to be thankful for all that God had done. I want to say something here about grumbling. Guys, do you know that cynicism is not a fruit of the Spirit? Do you know that? You know what it means to be cynical? I don't just mean, neg like, sometimes negative things happen. Like, you could say, Eric, your, your sermon's kind of negative right now. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I get it. Like, you, it's not all teddy bears and rainbows, folks. And there's nothing wrong with being negative, but there's a difference between being negative sometimes when it's necessary, when something is wrong, and being cynical. That you're, you're bound and determined to find the bad in it that you're bound and determined to be negative even though there's a lot of positive right in front of you. Even though you've just seen the Red Sea parted, even though you've been being led by a cloud and by a pillar of fire, even though you've drank from the rock, even though there's men out in front of you every day to feed your soul, you're still bound and determined to be negative. 
It's grumbling. And it will keep us from going into the promised land that God has for us. And Paul says here, verse 11, again, now he's going to just exhort, give some application to them and to us. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed lest he fall. Don't, don't give me any of this. Well, that, that, God did that stuff in the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament. No, he's the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. And the specifics look a little bit different, but what he wants is a people to worship him. And when I say worship him, I don't care if you can carry a tune in a bucket. What he wants is your heart. He wants your heart. Men and women, does he have your heart this morning? Do you honor him with your lips, but your heart is far from him? It's hypocrisy. When we come to church, I want to feed you. I want to encourage you. I want you to be built up, not beat up. But when you come, we come for Jesus Christ and for him alone to satisfy ourselves on him because there is salvation in no other name in heaven on earth by which you can be saved except the name of Jesus. And again, let me, uh, let me give a little aside here. This is what's always difficult for me. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, <laughs> he loves you. I'm more yelling at God's people this morning than you. <laughs> um, and guys, he... Listen, if you know him as Savior, he, he loves you too, but Mercy Hill Church, he wants our heart. He wants our heart. And sometimes you hear people say, and I'm pretty sure I've said before, like, you know, I'll say like, you know, God wants your marriage, he wants your relationships, he wants your business, he, you know, he, he wants your, your, your time, your money, like, like, that's true in a sense, but let me explain that for a second. Because I'll be straight with you, God doesn't need your business. He doesn't need your money. Anything you have is his anyway. You have it because he's given it to you. He doesn't need your influence. He doesn't need your power. He doesn't need your position or your title. What he wants is your heart. But if he has your heart, you know what you'll do with all those other things? Take them. God, they're yours. Because I've got you. Does he have, does he have your heart? That's what, that's what he's always wanted. And it's like, you know, again, another movie illustration. I apologize, but um, Jordy, my little buddy Jordy. Say hi, Jordy. Hi. My little buddy Jordy, his favorite, one of his favorite movies is The Grinch. You know? You know how the, and here's the thing. You're like, that's a Christmas movie. Oh, not for Jordy. It's not. The Grinch is anytime, man. So we, there's this newer version of The Grinch. And I, and I, so I was reading through this this past week and thinking about this message. It's like, I, I can't think of a better illustration. Is that what was the Grinch's problem? He just, remember that scene, whether it's the old, you know, version or like the newer, you know, version, better anime. It's, it's like his heart wasn't big enough. His heart just couldn't, everybody was excited about Christmas. There was all this love and this happiness going, and, but his heart just couldn't. He'd been hurt in the past. I don't know if this is in all the versions, but like in the newer version, it like gives this backstory of how he was like raised in an orphanage. And, and um, uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but anyway, that's how this version goes. And he, he was raised in this orphanage, you know, and he, he never got any presents at Christmas time. And so his, his heart had shrunk. 
And the problem was his heart. He didn't have the capacity. He didn't have the capacity to take in all the goodness that was all around him. And guys, what I want to say this morning again, and this is the this is the good news, this is, this is the gospel, is that when we turn to the Lord, when we say, God, I, I don't desire you, but I want to desire you. God, I'll be honest with you, I've been satisfying myself in other things, but Lord, I want to be satisfied in you. Father, I've been drinking from other wells, but Lord, I want to drink of your living water. Father, I've been trying to feed my soul on, on other things, but God, I want to feed on you and on your presence and on your word, on the manna that you offer. When we're honest with him about that, the goodness of God is that, guys, and this is, this is the core of Christianity, is that we, Christianity, it, it's, it, there is a transaction that takes place, but it is not just a transaction. It is a transaction that leads to a transformation. And the transformation that happens is that God will give you a new heart. A heart that is able to love him. A heart that wants more from him. A heart that isn't satisfied with, you know, living like the Grinch up by yourself on the mountain, just being cynical and bitter about everything. But he wants to give you a new heart that no matter what happens, that you say, Lord Jesus, I love you. I love you more than anything else. And what I'm calling calling for this morning so guys, we would just be honest. We must worship him, as I read earlier, in spirit and in truth. That we would not lie. That if he's not truly the lover of our soul, and if he's not truly our delight, that we'd say, God, you should be my delight, but you're not my delight. Would you please expand the capacity of my heart so that you could be my delight. Men and women, we need a miracle in our hearts. We need a miracle. We need a miracle in our hearts. And I, and I don't, um, I didn't ask them to say that. I, I, sorry, I'm, I wasn't planning on saying this, but like, I, I just want to say this. Like, I, I, I really believe, Grant Becky, I, you know me enough, like, I love you. Like, I really believe, like, that was, like, a prophetic thing this morning. That, that they shared that for years they couldn't conceive, but through prayer, now they have. Merciful Church, I want to tell us that, like, if we turn to the Lord and seek Him, He wants to conceive something in us. He wants to birth something in us that's not of us, but that's of him. And guys, that is what the world needs. They don't need more of us. They need him in us. Amen? Worship team, you can come up. We're just going to close with one song and, and, and sing. Paul ends here in this passage. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And here's the, the attribute of God that he comes back to and wants to remind them that they would not be lost in the wilderness forever as the Israelites were, but they were in danger of doing that. 
and we could be in the same danger. The attribute of God that he reminds them of, verse 13, is he says simply this, God is faithful. What should they have done when they were scared, when Moses was gone for 40 days, when he was up on the mountain, they didn't know what was going on and everything seemed scary? They should have remembered God is faithful. What should they have done when they had you know, sinful desires raging inside of them for sexual immorality? They should have remembered, no, God is, God is faithful. He's enough, he will satisfy me. What should they have done instead of grumbling about the manna? They should have said, God, you're faithful. Thank you for being faithful, for providing this every day. Instead of murmuring, instead of grumbling, instead of being cynical, what should they have done? They should have said, no, 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 God is faithful. God is faithful. And guys, I just want to, you know, as we close today, I just, I just want us to come back and um, turn our hearts towards, towards the Lord and, and just repent for uh, maybe trying to find our satisfaction in other stuff. Because God has, God has nothing but good things in store for us as his people. He always has like he did with the Israelites, like he did with the Corinthians, and he still does for us today, he always will. But we have to, we have to lay, our side, uh, lay aside our idols um, and the things that uh, we think are gonna satisfy us, because it, it just won't. And you know, guys, some of us, we, all Christianity has ever been is just something outward. It's something that you do, it's a place that you go. It's verses maybe even hours that just that you memorize and you get them in here, but you don't really trust the promises. They're not, they're, not, they're not precious to you. And again, I just want to say that that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is a miracle that the sovereign God of the universe does in your heart. And just because you've never experienced that, maybe all you've ever experienced is kind of, you know, death and the stuff of Egypt, of the old life, it doesn't mean that you have to continue to experience that. There's, there's, there's more for you. Let me close with just one quick story. I'll be done. From Russell Moore. He wrote a book called Adopted for Life, and he's recounting his experience of adopting two of their sons from Russia. He says, when Maria and I first walked into the orphanage that the Russian courts had picked for us to adopt from, we almost vomited from the stench and the squalor of the place. The boys were in cribs in the dark, lying in their own waist. Leaving them at the end of each day was painful, but leaving them the final day to go home while we waited for the final paperwork to go through was the hardest thing that either one of us had ever done in our lives. Walking out of the room to prepare for the plane ride home, Maria and I could hear little Maxim, it's one of their sons, calling for us. And falling down in his crib, he was convulsing in tears. Maria, my wife, shook with tears. And I turned around to walk back into their room for just a minute and I placed my hands on both their little heads knowing that they couldn't understand a word of my English and I said to them I will not leave you as orphans I will come to you he says I don't think I consciously decided to cite Jesus words to his disciples in John 14 18 it just that it seemed like the only thing worth saying at the time he goes on he says when Maria and I at long last received the call that the legal process was over we returned uh, at last to pick up our two new sons. We found that their transition from the orphanage to the family was more difficult than we had supposed. 
We dressed the boys in outfits our parents had brought for them, bought for them and nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight, but to the terror of the two little boys. They had never seen the sun. They had never felt the wind. They had never heard the sound of a car door slamming, and they had never had the sensation of being carried along at high speeds down a Russian road. I noticed that they were shaking and reaching back for the orphanage in the distance. I whispered to Sergey, who we now call Timothy, that place is a pit. If only you knew what's waiting for you. A home with a mommy and a daddy that loves you. Grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playmates and McDonald's Happy Meals. But all they knew was that orphanage. It was squalid and dark, but they had no other point of reference. It was their home. And guys, in the same way, I want to tell you, undoubtedly, that God has so much more for each one of us than the dark, dingy orphanage. Even if you know Him as Savior. Guys, God has not called us to live in a dark, dingy orphanage. He's called us to live in His presence and in the fullness of what He has for us. And yes, there's difficulty, but there's always, always, always joy. Amen. Let's turn to him this morning and believe that. Father, I pray that as we close here um, and as we sing, that our song could truly be one of turning, one of repentance, one of um, coming back to you, one of acknowledging that uh, we've not been delighting in all that you have provided for us and all that you intend for us. Lord, I, I pray, Father, that you would do a miracle in our hearts and that you'd give us hearts that are able to hold you, hearts that are able to take in all that you want for us, hearts that delight in seeking you. Um, Lord, we love you. We thank you for the privilege of being able to be together again to worship you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.